Hello and welcome to the Women Inspire podcast with me, Laura Adams. This is the podcast that inspires us by honouring remarkable women past and present. Women whose achievements have perhaps gone unrecognised, been forgotten or at times completely erased and whose stories are crying out to be told. London is a city full of war memorials, a reminder of the bravery and sacrifice of those who fought and died serving their country. But from day to day, we often pass by these memorials with barely a second glance. One of those is a 40 feet high modernist stone structure in the heart of the West End, on which a marble statue of a woman, a nurse, gazes into the distance. Above her may be read the words humanity, devotion, fortitude and sacrifice. Beneath the woman an inscription reads, Edith Cavill, Brussels, dawn October 12th, 1915. And her words, patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness for anyone. This is the city's only memorial to a woman who died in World War I. Her name may be familiar and you may have heard a little of her story, But today I want to ask, who was Edith Cavill? Edith Cavill was born on the 4th of December 1865 in the village of Swarderston in Norfolk to Reverend Frederick Cavill and his wife Louisa. She was the eldest of four and the family had a strict Christian ethic. Prayers would be held every day at eight in the morning and before Sunday lunch the children would be sent with bowls of food for needy villagers before they were allowed to tuck in themselves, which was very much in keeping with Victorian ideas of charity at the time. The expectation for the children was that they should live and work in service to the Lord. Edith was educated at home by her father and she displayed a flair for languages, particularly French, and was very good at drawing. Later on in life, she was to remember her childhood as a time when life was fresh and beautiful and the country so desirable and sweet. At 16, she was sent away to several boarding schools, which were similar to finishing schools in different parts of the country, after which she found a post as a governess in the Essex village of Steeple Bumpstead. She found it low-paid and lonely and was desperately homesick. The family found her reserved and unforthcoming. Having stuck at it for a year, she went home and travelled to Germany for a while, taking her watercolours and sketchbooks with her. She was happy and resolved to work abroad. She eventually found a governess position in Brussels, looking after three children. This family later remembered her as a kind, imaginative teacher who imbued the children with her strict moral views and a duty to help others. She particularly loved the family dogs and she became responsible for looking after them. However, Edith had a strong sense that she was destined to help people and be useful, and she was looking for her purpose in life. In 1894, she returned home and was inspired by her sisters Lillian and Florence, who was named after Florence Nightingale. They had become nurses themselves, and she found herself drawn to this profession. So at the age of 30, and with no experience at all, Edith was accepted at the Fountains Fever Hospital a hospital for infectious diseases in Tooting, South London. Life was tough, regimented and the workload was heavy, but it confirmed what she wanted to do with her life. She applied to train at the London Hospital under the formidable and inspirational matron Eva Lux, a friend of Florence Nightingale. These were long 12-hour days and hard work. She moved from ward to ward, gaining experience in all aspects of hospital care, and in the evenings they would have lectures. 
One of her lecturers was Frederick Treves, the surgeon who rescued Joseph Merrick, who became known as the Elephant Man, from being a sideshow exhibit. Again, she was known as reserved and even cool, but the patients found her very kind, and she at last knew this was absolutely what she was meant to do. After two years of training, she nursed privately for a year. Once fully qualified in 1898, she worked for 10 years as a nurse in various parts of the country, much of it in London and in Salford, but what she wanted was the position of matron. Finally, in 1907, she was asked to become matron of the first training schools in Brussels at the Birkendale Institute. Nursing in Belgium was way behind the English system, which had been set up by Florence Nightingale 50 years earlier. And Edith's role in Brussels was to be a pioneering one and a huge challenge. It was her perfect job. When she arrived with high hopes and despite nothing being ready, she put her heart and soul into it, working hard to impose the English system. Up until now, the sick had been nursed by mostly nuns who were unqualified. It was difficult to promote Belgian girls to nursing as it was held in low esteem and there was such a stigma attached to it. Therefore, nurses were recruited from across Europe and it really was an international group of women. Edith's approach was to run her school with strict discipline and rules such as chastity, no married nurses, no going out with doctors and lights out by ten. Breakfast was at six o'clock in the morning and apparently she kept a clock beside her at the head of the table and if a nurse was even two minutes late, she would lose all her free time that day. But Edith was always very kind to the needy, giving food and money to the poor and she would hold fantastic parties at Christmas for the children. One day in 1910, a dog showed up. She fed him and he wouldn't leave. He became fiercely protective of her and she called him Jack and would walk him through the streets of Brussels. He thought of the nurses as sheep and would try to round them up and nip their ankles if they went in the wrong direction. They hated him. By 1914, the school was very much established and work had started on a new nursing school. Her intention was to have an army of well-trained nurses who would spiral out of Brussels to the rest of Belgium and beyond. But in July of that year, Edith went home to Norfolk to celebrate her mother's birthday. She was always very close to her mother. However, while she was there, they received the news that war had broken out. Foreigners were getting out of Belgium as fast as they could in anticipation of German invasion. Edith was already home, so her family tried to persuade her not to return. But no, Edith knew she would be needed. So what did she do? As fast as she could, she made her way back to Brussels to help. She arrived on the 3rd of August. When she got back to Brussels, there was still optimism that the German army wouldn't get to the city. The British Expeditionary Force was on their way and Edith wrote that we were full of enthusiasm for the war and full of confidence in the Allies. Beds were prepared for the wounded and the school became a Red Cross hospital set up to treat soldiers from both sides of the conflict but it was expected that the war would be over very soon. However, the Germans had been underestimated. There was devastation in Belgium as the German army advanced towards the capital and the British Expeditionary Force had not arrived. By the 20th of August, 50,000 German soldiers were marching through Brussels. There was no resistance. Now an occupied city, life under the Germans was brutal. There was so much poverty, little food, 
There were soup kitchens, queues, theatres and cinemas were closed and added to this, few shops were open. Coal was scarce and there was a fear of spies. Fighting nearby was fierce and wounded soldiers from both sides were being brought into the city. Edith was adamant that they should all be treated friend or foe. Each one, she said, was a father, a brother, a son. The Battle of Mons was the first battle between British and German forces on the Western Front. Faced with the superior strength of the German forces, the British were in danger of being decimated and they were forced to retreat. Many wounded soldiers were cut off from their units behind enemy lines. They were known as les enfants perdus, the lost children by the French, or derelicts by the Germans. Often they were wounded and sometimes in small groups or alone, and they had to survive on their wits, relying on the kindness of strangers living in barns. Often they died or surrendered and would be sent to prisoner of war camps. Two of those were Colonel Boger and Sergeant Meachin. They were wounded and trapped behind enemy lines. They had hidden in a barn for weeks, but eventually found their way to Brussels, and Edith was asked to help them. She treated them at her hospital, and after 18 days she gave them Belgium clothes and arranged guides to smuggle them out of the country into neutral Holland. Boger was unfortunately arrested, but Meacham found his way back to England. These were the first, but she soon became a principal agent in Brussels and an important part of the resistance network, working to get these soldiers to safety. Over the next 11 months, she would help at least 200 British and Allied servicemen to escape, possibly many more. Her school became a safe house, but to her credit, Edith was at pains not to involve her nurses if at all possible, and she insisted that life carry on as normal. She would harbour the escapees either in the cellar, on wards or in other safe houses and then in the early morning she would personally take the men to designated handover points where a guide would be waiting to take them to the border. She would appear as a middle-aged woman walking her dog Jack and the disguised soldiers would follow at a distance, hiding in the shadows. She became adept at noticing if they were being followed. She used most of her salary to help the soldiers and was always appealing for more funds. She would ensure that each soldier had 25 francs on them before they made their escape. The resistance network was growing, but by now the Germans had become much better at spying, stalking suspects and flushing them out. Soon, Edith herself came under surveillance. One evening, a private Scot arrived. He was severely wounded and Edith was treating him on a ward. But that night the hospital was searched. She quickly got him out to the garden, hid him in a barrel and covered him with apples to escape detection. Everyone involved in the network displayed extraordinary courage, but the net was closing. Edith was under enormous strain, but her belief was that if we are arrested we shall be punished in any case, whether we have done much or little. So let us go ahead and save as many as possible of these unfortunate men. On August 5th, 1915, Edith's office was ransacked by the German secret police and at 4pm she was arrested. It was said as she was taken off past her nurses that her whole bearing was calm and composed. Jack was whining and pined by the door after she left. Two days later, she was taken to Saint-Gilles prison in Brussels and kept in solitary confinement in cell 23. After a few days, she was interrogated in German, which was then translated into French. 
Though she signed the deposition, she had no way of knowing if it was indeed what she had said. The Germans hated the English. Edith's reserved manner was not endearing her to them, and it may have prejudiced them against her. They put words into her mouth and twisted what she said to make out she'd been helping the men escape in order to rejoin their regiments, when in fact her sole aim had been to get them to the frontier to save them from imprisonment or death. At her trial on the 7th of October, she was tried alongside 34 others in her network. She wore a blue coat and skirt, not her nurse's uniform. This might have been a mistake, but she said she was being tried as herself, not as a nurse. It was a show trial. Edith was questioned for no more than ten minutes. Up until this moment, it was thought that the punishment would be prison. It was only on the second day of the trial that the words death penalty were first heard. The following day, the judges ruled that Edith and several others should receive the death penalty, though most of the other death sentences were eventually commuted. Two days later, on the 11th of October at three in the afternoon, Edith was taken from her cell to the central hall of the prison, where she was told of her sentence, that she was to be executed by firing squad early the following morning. She was urged to appeal, but she refused, saying, They want my life. It's useless. I am English. Until now, diplomats from neutral countries had done very little to help her, but there was a sudden last-minute rush to have her sentence commuted, Sadly, it was too late. That evening, an Irish Anglican priest, Sterling Garn, came to take the Holy Sacrament and offer his solace. It was to him that she uttered the immortal words, I realise that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness toward anyone, which may be seen on her monument. In her last letter to the nurses, she said, Should any of you have a grievance against me, I pray your pardon. I may sometimes have been too severe, but never voluntary unjust, and I have loved you all much more than you realise. Her last letter to her 81-year-old mother was confiscated, and she never received it. At 5am the following morning, Edith washed, folded her bed, tidied her clothes, did her hair, and dressed in the clothes that she had worn for her trial. She was taken by military car to the Tier Nationale, the Brussels shooting range, alongside Philippe Bauck, a fellow member of the network who was condemned to die alongside her. The range was a large field with a steep grassy slope, in front of which were two white posts, and to the side of each post were two yellow coffins. Two rows of eight soldiers were lined up ready. Edith asked that a message get to her mother that she believed her soul was safe. She was bound to the stake, and later the German pastor who had accompanied her said that as her eyes were bandaged, they were full of tears. He said she went to her death with a bearing which is quite impossible to forget. Back home, within days, Edith's death made the British headlines. Her death was seen as a heaven-sent opportunity for the propaganda machine, a clarion call for recruiting young men into the army, let Cavill be the battle cry, and remember Edith Cavill, was the slogan on posters, and recruitment doubled from 5,000 to 10,000 young men per week. Her memory was sentimentalised, 
But what should not be forgotten is that she was a remarkable woman, a pioneering nurse and an intrepid war hero, who with great courage and guile helped many soldiers to safety in the full knowledge that there would be consequences to her actions. Edith asked only that she be remembered as a nurse who tried to do her duty. When asked how they would like Edith to be commemorated, her family said they wanted no monuments, but that instead a retirement home for nurses should be established, as it had been Edith's dream to open one after the war with her sister. Despite this, more monuments were raised to her than any other woman in World War I. After the war, Edith's body, which had been buried at the Tier Nationale, was exhumed and brought back to Britain. At 11 in the morning on the 14th of May 1919, a procession of nurses walked from Victoria to Westminster Abbey in front of a gun carriage bearing her coffin and which was draped in the Union flag. They were accompanied by soldiers of all ranks, military bands and thousands of people thronged the streets. From the Abbey, she was taken to Norwich Cathedral in Norfolk, where after another service, she was laid to rest. I have a slight personal connection to Edith Cavill, which is how I became interested in her story. About 20 years ago, my grandmother showed me an old newspaper cutting, which announced the retirement of her uncle, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Cutbill, from the Suffolk Regiment. The newspaper reports that as a young officer, he had been shot and left for dead at the Battle of Mons, whereupon he found himself a prisoner of war in the Saint-Gilles prison at the same time as Edith. The report continues that he offered to take her place that day in front of the firing squad, but of course this was refused, and he would never allow it to be spoken of afterwards. Reading the article brought history vividly and painfully to life, and it was this that drew me to Edith Cavill and her story. So if you find yourself in London, walking up from Trafalgar Square to the theatre perhaps, or shopping, sightseeing or going to work, look up for a moment at Edith's monument and spare a thought for this remarkable woman, a nurse who did her duty. Thank you for listening to the Women Inspire podcast. If you'd like to know more about Edith Cavill, please see the show notes on the podcast page of our website, womeninspire.co.uk, where you can also read our blogs and find details of our forthcoming public walks. I will be taking a break over the summer to work on an exciting new area for Women Inspire, which will be announced in the autumn. In the meantime, have a fantastic summer and all the best. Thank you.